0: Hi again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We're looking at quite a fascinating reading today. So, as always, we want to dive into the text to help you understand what it probably meant in its original context. So, today's reading at Mass is Mark chapter 9, verses 41 to 50. Here's the text. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone gives you a cup of water to drink just because you belong to Christ then I tell you solemnly, he will most certainly not lose his reward. But anyone who is an obstacle to bring down one of these little ones who have faith would be better thrown into the sea with a great millstone round his neck. And if your hand should cause you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and to go to hell, into the fire that cannot be put out. And if your foot should cause you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye should cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die nor their fire go out. For everyone will be salted with fire salt is a good thing but if salt has become insipid how can you season it again have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another so a really interesting reading that we have here today and it's particularly interesting because we don't always get to hear this reading at mass this thursday of week seven in ordinary time only occurs in some years because in other years it's actually overridden uh, by the feasts associated with Lent. So it's actually quite rare that you would get to hear this particular reading. So what's the context? Jesus is moving through Galilee with his disciples, and they've reached Capernaum, and this scene apparently takes place in Jesus' own home, or certainly near his home in Capernaum. It's some sort of private briefing with his disciples. He's not speaking to the crowds here. He's speaking to his disciples. They've just been objecting to Jesus, about someone who was unauthorized and they were working miracles in Jesus' name. And the disciples were a bit annoyed by that. And Jesus said to them in response, anyone who is not against us is for us. So we're now going to see the extension of that particular thought. Verse 41, Jesus changes his thought here slightly. If anyone gives you a cup of water to drink just because you belong to Christ... What it actually says there is, because you bear the name of Christ, there's that theme of name of Christ again. So Jesus here is saying that anyone who even helps a disciple of Jesus is on Jesus' side. Anyone who even helps a disciple of Jesus is on his side. They don't have to perform mighty works in Jesus' name. Anyone who even gives them so much as a cup of cold water, which of course would be very useful in that society, because if the apostles are going around preaching in the hot weather... A cup of cold water will be actually very much needed by the apostles. So Jesus says anyone who gives you even so much as a cold cup of water is on Jesus' side and the side of the kingdom. Jesus here is saying that the apostles' mission in preaching the kingdom of God is so important that anyone who cooperates with it, even in a small way, like giving the Christian a cup of water, will be rewarded. This is actually the same basic teaching as the parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says people will be rewarded based on how they treat Christians. It's a similar kind of thing here. Jesus is trying to communicate to them that look, even if they're not officially approved, you're going to meet many people who are going to help you and God will approve of them because they're helping our kingdom work. Jesus says, "Then I tell you solemnly, he will most certainly not lose his reward." So anyone who helps the apostles and the kingdom is approved by god and he will not lose his reward interesting phrasing isn't it this verse implies that it's possible for someone in the kingdom to lose their rewards if he's saying they will not lose their reward that would seem to imply that some people could lose their rewards what does it mean by reward and you could interpret this different ways probably here it means something like degrees of glory in heaven the teaching of jesus is that people can be in the kingdom And in the next life, they can be in the kingdom with God, but they can lose their reward, which kind of means they can lose their degree of glory in heaven. This is an interesting teaching, but it is actually part of Catholic teaching as well. We move on to a different section now, and this next section appears in different contexts in both Matthew. So it's in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gives his kind of uh, sermon about disciples and also in Luke chapter 17. So it's in different contexts there. For this reason, some scholars think that maybe Mark here has inserted these words in this spot, even though they didn't occur on this occasion. Maybe Mark is trying to make it seem like Jesus said this straight after his teaching about being broad-minded. Perhaps this is just a theory, but maybe Mark wants his readers to not or he wants to ensure that his readers don't take away the wrong message from what he's just said about being open-minded to people. Maybe Mark is saying there's a place for being open, but he also wants to remind them that Jesus teaches that sin is a serious matter. So openness, yes, to an extent, but not so open that we allow sin. In other words, if God graciously rewards little acts of kindness, on the other hand, he's going to severely punish acts of evil, especially, as we'll see... Acts that involve scandal. Verse 42, Jesus says to the disciples, anyone who is an obstacle to bring down. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. This can be translated different ways. It can be translated, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or you can even translate this stumble. The Greek word here is scandalizo, which means to bring someone to ruin. Interesting, scandalizo, to bring someone to ruin. Most translations here understand Jesus here to be talking about temptations to sin. Jesus here says, anyone who brings temptation to sin to others. And that, of course, is what we would call the sin of scandal. So, here we have one of the key passages about the sin of scandal. And indeed, it comes from the Greek word here, scandalizo. Anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Now, who are these little ones? What it actually says here in Mark's version is one of these little ones who have faith or one of these little ones who believe in me. Who is that? Who are the little ones? There's two different ways of interpreting this. It could refer to children, as in biological children. And remember in this very same scene just before this, Jesus said a child in front of him. So maybe he is talking about children, but it could also mean new disciples in general. So new people who are new in the faith. And that would also fit with what Jesus has just said about spreading the kingdom and about how people are going to join them in spreading the kingdom. It seems when we put this together with the context, when Jesus says this in the other gospels, it looks like Jesus is talking about young disciples or those who are new believers, not biological children. So it's best to understand these words as Jesus talking about those who are weak or vulnerable in the faith. And that would probably include young children, but basically anyone who's a new believer. Jesus says, Anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better thrown into the sea with a great millstone round his neck. Or another translation here is, It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Pretty strong words here from Jesus firstly what's a millstone a millstone is a very heavy stone it's often called a donkey millstone it's a heavy donut shaped stone that it was it was so heavy it could actually only be turned by a donkey humans couldn't turn this but donkeys could so if a person was to have this hung around their neck they would quickly drown jesus here is giving us an image of a quick death but a horrible death it's a severe punishment in the old testament Uh, It's reserved for God's enemies in the Old Testament. If you think of Exodus 14, Pharaoh and his army drown. Nehemiah 11 talks about God's enemies drowning. Zechariah 9. And then even in Revelation 18 verse 21, it talks about God's enemies drowning. Now, when Jesus here says it will be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a great millstone around his neck, it probably is a hyperbole. Jesus is probably exaggerating to make a point. But certainly he's emphasizing the seriousness of leading those who are weak in faith into sin. This is a warning to his disciples. Jesus is saying they have a particular responsibility to ensure that they model the faith well and don't lead others into sin by their words and actions. He's saying, this is serious. Make sure you are not a temptation of sin to others. So what then does it mean for Jesus to say it will be better for him to be thrown into the sea? Why would it be better for him to be thrown into the sea? there's two main interpretations here. Maybe Jesus is teaching that it would be better if the person was dead and therefore not able to lead others into scandal in the first place. Or maybe Jesus is emphasizing the punishment that will come if a person does lead someone young into sin. Jesus is saying that if you lead someone into sin, you are going to have a very serious punishment ahead of you. And in that sense, it will be better for you to to drown, to have that punishment, compared to the eternal punishment that will result otherwise. So there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. Jesus is now going to talk about taking drastic measures to avoid sin. And indeed, he's going to talk about the consequences of what happens if you do commit a mortal sin, if you're not careful to guard yourself against sin. This actually matches what Jesus said earlier about forfeiting one's life. Jesus says, what does it gain a man to have the whole world, but to forfeit one's life. And there he's talking about forfeiting eternal life. So Jesus teaching all the way through is that through your actions and your choices, you can forfeit eternal life. And we're going to see that here. Now, in the context of what Jesus has just said, Jesus is probably thinking particularly of scandal. He's he's thinking particularly of ensuring that the apostles minimize their opportunity to cause others to sin. Verse 43, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, and in the Greek here, it says, if your hand causes you to scandalizo, cut it off. Now, this is a very famous phrase of Jesus, isn't it? This is accepted by pretty much all scholars as a hyperbole. Jesus is not saying literally cut off your hand if it makes it prone to sin. It seems that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. This was a common Jewish way of teaching at the time They would sort of shoot over the mark in order to make the point. A similar hyperbole is when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that's physically impossible. So here we have a similar teaching. It's it's a hyperbole, an exaggeration, but he's still making a very serious point. He's calling for the crowd, for the disciples to take drastic action to stop sin at its root. And that's primarily the will. This is a teaching about cutting sin off at the root, which is the human will. Jesus is telling his disciples that they must do everything they can to avoid the near occasion of sin. And they need to be willing to take ruthless, drastic action against their sinful drives so that they can enter eternal life. If they don't control their sin and if they do fall into mortal sin because they didn't keep a guard on their will... They could forfeit eternal life. That's the teaching here. He's warning his disciples. Jesus says, It is better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell. And the Greek word here for hell is gehenna. We need to talk a bit about this word gehenna. It comes up a bit in the Gospels. Whenever Jesus talks about gehenna, Gehenna, he's referring to what we would now call hell. Jesus' listeners would have shuddered at the mention of the word gehenna. In Hebrew, Gehenna means the valley of the son of Hinnom. And this is a real place in Israel. So it's a steep ravine southwest of Jerusalem. And it shows up a couple of times in the Old Testament. Firstly, idolatrous Israelites had sacrificed their own children to the pagan god Moloch. In Jeremiah 7 and 19, it talks about the valley of Hinnom being where they sacrificed to the pagan god Moloch. And then later, under the reforms of King Josiah this same vile site was desecrated. So the righteous king took it back in 2 Kings 23, but later it became a garbage dump uh, full of maggot-ridden carcasses and burning refuse. So late in the Old Testament, the Valley of Gehenna was actually a garbage dump. It constantly had burning refuse and there was actually maggots in there. So the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was a place that most of Jesus' readers would have been to and they would have actually seen this smoldering pile of rubbish. So Jesus uses it as an image of hell in Jewish extra biblical literature. So some of the stuff that was written between the old Testament and new Testament Gehenna. So in the years leading up to Jesus, Gehenna became an image of the future punishment of the damned. So if you look at the book of Enoch one, Enoch particularly, it talks there about how, uh, hell, the future eternal punishment is, In a way, like Gehenna. So, Jesus is not the first one to say that, uh, to call hell Gehenna. That was a common way of describing hell at that time. Many people don't realize this. When Jesus calls hell Gehenna, they would have known exactly what he was talking about this burning pit of rubbish. Jesus uses it in the sense of this is what eternal life will be like. So, Jesus here says, if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better to enter into eternal life maimed than to go to gehenna jesus here teaches that although dealing with sinful thoughts in this way might be painful and difficult it's far better than ending up in hell and jesus here teaches that hands if you think about it he says hands can be involved in mortal sin particularly if it causes scandal jesus is thinking particularly of scandal the clear teaching here is it's possible to do things with your hands that can land you in hell. It's possible to commit a mortal sin if you're not careful. And think about it. Jesus' teaching here, depending on how literally we take the metaphor, Jesus does seem to be teaching that hell will be, in some sense, a physical bodily experience. He's saying you'll, you'll be tormented in hell. The teaching of the Catholic Church is that everyone will have a body in the afterlife. Even those in hell will have a body. So Jesus' metaphor about hands and soon about eyes and feet. It's quite graphic when he says, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, but it's actually quite well matched because Jesus is saying that, look, in eternal life, you are going to have body parts. So if your body parts cause you a problem in this life, you need to do something about it. So the physicality here is somewhat deliberate on Jesus' part because eternal life is quite physical. So there's a lot going on in this passage and a lot of this could have its own separate episode or a whole sermon given on individual lines of this teaching here so jesus goes on he says it will be better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell and then he says that is the fire that cannot be put out or more literally the unquenchable fire jesus says that's a good image of hell unquenchable fire kind of like the valley of gehenna was in their own day now you might have wondered when we first started this reading today why is it skip a few verses so today we're looking at verses 38 to 43 and then 45 and then verses 47 to 48. So why don't we read verse 44 and verse 46? It's because most manuscripts don't have it. They don't have verse 44, but some manuscripts do. So some manuscripts have verse 44. It's actually a double up of, of later verse 48. So verse 44 says this, Into the fire that cannot be put out, where their worm does not die, nor their fire go out. So, this phrase here about where their worm does not die, nor their fire go out, it's the same as verse 48. So, nothing is lost here, even if we say it wasn't in the original manuscripts. It is certainly, verse 48 was certainly in the original manuscripts. What does Jesus mean here when he says, where their worm does not die, nor their fire goes out? It seems to echo a description of eternal punishment in the book of Isaiah. So, Isaiah describes the fate of God's enemies this way, their worm shall not die, nor their fire be extinguished, and they shall be abhorrent to all mankind. That's in Isaiah 66 verse 24. Now in the time of Isaiah, they hadn't fully worked out this idea of eternal punishment. So probably when Isaiah is speaking, he's thinking of temporal, earthly punishment that God will inflict on on his enemies, but Jesus sees in here, and perhaps when Isaiah was giving this, it was a prophecy, that it's a good image of eternal punishment. Their worms shall not die, nor their fire be extinguished. Now, when we hear this language of worms and fires, you might wonder, is Jesus teaching that f- uh, that hell literally has flames and it has worms? You could go either way with this. I think you can make a strong case that Jesus is using somewhat metaphorical language that Jesus is adopting. So he's not intending to teach that hell literally has flames, but he thinks it's a very good image for what eternal punishment is like. Now, it could well be that hell has flames, and there's no official Catholic teaching on this. Uh, but certainly it could be true that Jesus is adopting some of the Jewish ways of speaking about hell in his own day, where, and particularly with the Valley of Gehenna, which was depicted as a good way of thinking about a good image of what eternal punishment would be like. Verse 45, Jesus continues, And if your foot should cause you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. So Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. So apparently feet can cause people to sin. And then in verse 46, which is not in our manuscript, but again, some manuscripts have verse 46, where their worm does not die, nor their fire go out. Then we get to verse 47, and if your eye should cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So same teaching here about eyes. And in Matthew's gospel, this is used in the context of adultery. Matthew 5, verse 30, Jesus Straight after he's been talking about adultery, he says this about the eye. So maybe it was supposed to be an image of lust in particular. Interesting that Jesus here doesn't just say end up in hell. He says that otherwise you'll be thrown into hell. That's an active word and that would imply that God is the one that sends them to hell. They'll be thrown into hell. That's certainly one way of interpreting Jesus' words here. Jesus now says in verse 48 to finish this section, where their worm does not die nor their fire go out. Now, this idea of a hand or a foot being cut off for the sake of eternal life actually brings to mind a real incident that did happen in the Old Testament. So in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, there's this graphic incident where the heroic mother and seven sons endure torture and dismemberment. Rather than disobey God's law, they're actually willing to give up their body parts rather than turn against God and his law. So it's actually uh, perhaps a story that many of Jesus' hearers would have been familiar with. They would have immediately thought of 2 Maccabees 7, where the people were willing to give up body parts rather than endure God's wrath because they turned away from him. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus is now going to give some teachings about salt, and we're probably all familiar with the, you are the salt of the earth phrase. Now, he doesn't actually say this here. That version is in Matthew. So what we're going to see here is some teachings on salt that are fairly similar to what he says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Luke as well, he says that. But the wording here is different. So it looks like a collection of slightly different salt sayings. Same basic point he's making, but his sort of varying the sayings a little bit to make a slightly different point, which is what the rabbis in that culture would have done. They would make this, give the same basic teaching, but vary it slightly based on the context. The points he's going to make here about salt, at first glance, seem to be all over the place. They don't seem to be connected. So, Mark is sort of portraying Jesus here, teaching in a very rabbinic style, which is the rabbis would put disparate points that don't seem connected. They would put them together because they're all associated with the same word in order to invite the listeners to a deeper reflection on what's common about them. But I think there's more going on here, too. I think that what Jesus is, says here about salt is connected. They are all saying basically the same thing, but we need to dive into them a little bit. And what's particularly interesting about these salt sayings, so we're in verse 49 and 50 now, they're never read on a Sunday, and as I mentioned at the start of the episode, this whole section is only read once on a weekday, Thursday of week 7 in ordinary time. And in most years, you won't get to hear that, because uh, Lent tends to override it in a lot of years. So, these particular salt sayings of Mark, they're only found in Mark, and they're very rarely heard at Mass. So, verse 49... For everyone will be salted. Now, let's stop there. In that culture, salt had various different uh, uses. In the Old Testament, temple sacrifices had to be offered with salt. So, Ezekiel 43 mentions this, and Exodus chapter 30 mentions this as well. Whenever you do a temple sacrifice, salt has to be involved. On top of that, the Israelites are warned not to insult God in a spiritual way with offerings that lack the salt of the covenant of your God. That's in Leviticus chapter two. They're warned and they're basically told, don't offer empty sacrifices, ones that are devoid of genuineness. It it was easy for them to fall into offering sacrifices that were purely ritual and didn't really have a genuine heart behind them. And so they're warned about that even in the book of Leviticus, interestingly. Here, Jesus says, everyone will be salted. So he wants his disciples to be salted. He's seeing that as a good thing. He's saying that salt is a necessary quality in his disciples, just as the Old Testament sacrifices, a necessary component was salt. So Jesus here is saying, if you're part of the kingdom, if you're one of my disciples, you need to have salt. So whatever salt is, it's something that's going to keep them genuine and vibrant, just as salt in the Old Testament sacrifices was required as sort of, and it was even used as a spiritual metaphor for genuineness of the sacrifice. So Jesus is probably tapping into that here. When he mentions salt, he's probably thinking of genuineness. He wants his disciples to be genuine. They need salt. But here's the entire phrase, which makes it interesting. For everyone will be salted with fire. So the meaning of this phrase probably means something like this. Everyone will become salt, but only through a fiery process. Now, we know that fire has a purifying effect. That's one of the aspects of fire. And so he's using fire in a different sense to what he's just mentioned about fire in reference to hell. Now he's talking about fire in a purifying sense. So he says, basically, he says, Christians, my disciples need to be salty. And the way they become salty is through fire. This is probably a reference to the trials and temptations that face believers. Notice the word for here. For everyone will be salted. He starts that section with the word for, which means it's connected to the previous section. So in that sense, what's Jesus referring to here? He's probably thinking of the purifying suffering of penance needed to avoid sin and turn away from impure habits. Remember, he's been talking about um, you need to avoid sin. You need to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. And he's, he sees a connection here. He said, having said all that, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And so the meaning is probably Christians will be purified through avoiding sin and turning away from impure habits. Basically, penance. Jesus here is giving a teaching here about penance Avoiding sin that is the way to holiness. This is interesting. We don't often think about uh, this part of mark But it's one of jesus strongest and most interesting teachings about The necessity of becoming a genuine Christian with salt through avoiding sin and penance We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that fire is used as a metaphor uh, fire and trials are used to bring the Christian to perfection that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1 And those who cooperate with God's refining fire will be spared the fires of the next world. Interesting the way Jesus is using it here. There's a good fire in this life, which we can cooperate with. But if we don't, we end up in a worse fire in the next world. Now, some manuscripts here also add another phrase, which is, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. And of course, that links to what we said earlier about Old Testament sacrifices needing salt. Verse 50 salt is a good thing now in that culture salt was a good thing it was quite well known it was used to flavor food and also to preserve food it was quite crucial uh, for cooking so Jesus says that salt is a good thing but then he says but if salt has become insipid in other translation there would be if the salt has lost its saltiness how can a Christian lose his saltiness it would happen if a Christian loses his genuineness basically And as a result, he's no longer useful for the kingdom of God. He can no longer attract others. He's no longer living the genuine Christian message. In the context of everything Jesus has been saying, a Christian could lose his saltiness if they refuse to embrace Jesus' call to humility and self-denial. He's been talking about those things. And also, if they're compromised by sin, in other words, if they refuse to avoid the temptation to sin, they will lose their saltiness. So these are genuine warnings for Christians. Christians are called to be salt, and salt is a good thing. But it's possible for a Christian to lose its saltiness if they don't cooperate with the trials that God brings them. So Jesus says, "If salt has become insipid, how can you season it again?" And this is a rhetorical question because the answer is you can't. If, a salt, if salt loses its saltiness, there's no way of getting it back. So this is a warning to Christians, saying that it's not easy to get back into the kingdom if you lose your genuineness as a Christian. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus then concludes this saying by saying, Salt will be good for nothing if it loses its saltiness, and can only be thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. So, what's the meaning here? Well, Jesus doesn't give us the meaning, so we have to guess, but it's something like this His disciples are the salt of the world. Their purpose is to spread the kingdom of God and to preserve goodness in the world. If they stop doing this, and stop attracting people to the kingdom. They're no longer useful in the kingdom of God. They're no longer true disciples. And then Jesus says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Only Mark's version has this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So the saying here means that if the Christian disciples are at peace with one another, they will maintain their saltiness. Those two are equivalent. Salt in yourselves, is equal to be at peace with one another. So Jesus is telling his Christian disciples they need to be in peace with each other, and this is the biblical notion of peace, shalom, that doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, but the presence of deep communion. This is fairly similar to what Jesus says uh, at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John about. The world will know that you're Christians by the love you have for each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. It's a similar kind of thing here. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this rounds out the whole section which began with the disciples' quarrel about other disciples. Remember, they came to Jesus and said, we're worried about these other disciples. So Jesus kind of finishes this section by saying, therefore, be at peace with one another. That's how you preserve your saltiness. So this idea of peace being a crucial component of the Christian life is similar to things that are said later in the New Testament. So I'll quote now a short quote from the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' words here are similar to Paul's injunctions. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Colossians 4 verse 6. The disciples' conversations with one another and with outsiders must be marked by the fervent love for Christ that leads to humility. It is their spiritual intensity, kept alive through a profound conformity to Jesus in his self-emptying love, that will bring them into unity with one another. So that's quite a nice uh, way of finishing this section, I think. So this ends the scene in Capernaum, and it ends Mark chapter 9. Jesus is now getting very close to the end of his ministry, and in chapter 10 we'll see him on the road again heading towards Jerusalem. So just one catechism reference for us to look at today, paragraph 1034. This is about the church's teaching on hell, which of course links to what Jesus said earlier in the passage. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna of the unquenchable fire, reserved for those who to the end of their lives refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels... And they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire, and that he will pronounce the condemnation, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. So some pretty strong words there, but it's reminding us the Catholic teaching is that hell is a real place, and Jesus talks about it here in Mark chapter 9. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We've got to look at some quite interesting aspects of Jesus' teachings that we sometimes don't get to hear much of at Mass. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it around and consider becoming a financial supporter of the ministry as well. And there's a link to the Patreon page in the show notes. Thanks for your support and we'll continue in Mark in the coming days.